I guess I am never going to have a professional rugby career. That is exactly the sentence that I uttered to my wife the other day. That may seem bizarre, particularly bizarre because I've never actually played a game of rugby in my life, but uh, it dawned on me suddenly a couple weeks ago. We were watching a game. This player, a guy named Daniel Carter, was playing. Uh, Daniel Carter is one of the most famous uh, players at a position similar to quarterback for the most famous team in the world and just big superstar. Uh, at least was. And we saw him on TV the other day, and he was on the bench to start a game. And I said, why is he on the bench? I guess it's, he's just he's too old. He's starting to slow down, and he cannot do it anymore. And then my wife looked at me and goes, well, he's the same age you are. And I said, no, that's impossible. So I looked it up. He is 18 months older than I am. But given that I have not started this career yet, it would assume I, I, in 18 months I will not manage to catch up, right? And it's silly. I mean, it was something that I've always loved watching the game. When I was in my 20s, I thought, oh, maybe I'd play for a club and maybe I'll be phenomenal and somehow end up doing that someday, right? And I just realized watching this 36-year-old guy who is now too old to play, that's never going to happen for me. Uh that's true. I am younger than Tom Brady. I was thinking today, I, as, if, if I watch the Celtics game, I will be older than almost every player on the court, right? LeBron James, I think, is exactly a year younger than me by like 360 days or something like that. And he's the old guy. And if you have, uh, some of you, this is going to be old hat. For some of us, we're just getting into this. But, you know, you do get to a place in your life where you start realizing that there are things that you are never going to check off your list, right? That, you, uh, that there are things that you are never going to do. I am just now reaching the point in my life where I'm recognizing that the decisions that I've made and the places that I've been and the commitments that I've made are going to prevent me from doing other things. Up until this point... I still had this feeling that life was a complete blank slate. And if I really wanted to change course, I had the opportunity to do so. And now, not so much, right? I mean, this new career with four kids this is going to be pretty tricky, you know? And it starts to hit you. You start to, uh, I start to appreciate. I feel like I'm too young to have a midlife crisis. But then, you know, it all depends on life expectancy, right? You know, like I'm pretty close to halfway to 70. And so, uh, yeah, right. But so you start to think about these things like, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? And if we're honest in the darker moments, we ask ourselves, what's it been worth? What have we accomplished? Where have we gotten? And it's easy to start to look back and feel like, have I done anything with the life and the blessings and the history that I've had? We've been going through this series of um, books of the Hebrew Bible that we don't study often, right? These little prophetic books that just kind of are names that I could throw four of them at you. Two of them could be real. Two of them could be fake. And many of you would not know which was which, right? And that is where we're, uh, what we've been studying. And today we're going to study the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah, the way I would put it, is Israel is kind of in a midlife crisis. Um, the books that we've read thus far through this series have all been about the approaching doom, right? You guys have heard a lot about 
Assyrians and Babylonians and them coming in and destroying Israel and sending people into exile and repent before the destruction comes or don't worry about repenting, it's too late, the destruction is coming. Or last week, you shouldn't be so nasty to other people when the destruction comes. But it's all been rooted in those events of conquest and exile. We are now going to fast forward about 70 years to when the exile ends. The Babylonians are defeated by the Persians, and the Persians have a very different style of governorship. The Babylonians thought you crushed a place, you took all their best and smartest people, you moved them to the other side of the planet, and that way you kept their people dumb and stupid and poor, and you could rule them well that way. The Persians said, you know, no matter how dumb or stupid they are, they still revolt against you, right? And they sort of had this feeling that when you mistreat and oppress the people that you've conquered, they tend to rise up against you and you have constant flare-ups of revolution. And so the Persians' uh, standard policy is repatriation. They say, if you live here in our capital and you are from someplace else, Go back to your homeland, rebuild it, and as long as you stay quiet and pay your taxes, we'll let you have a modicum of control over your own culture, right? And so the Israelites, the Judahites, this is what they're experiencing, is they're being allowed to come back to the land of Judah, come back to Jerusalem, and rebuild their culture. But a rebuild it is. These people are coming in and they're saying, my parents or my grandparents told me of how beautiful Jerusalem was. And so they come back from Babylon and they get to Jerusalem and they see this. They see buildings overturned. They see things that are still burned out and boarded up and destroyed. I don't think they boarded up in the ancient world, but you get the idea, right? This is, they're living in this skeleton town. They're in this country that had been devastated and destroyed. And for Israel, they start asking these midlife, uh, midlife crisis questions. What's it been worth? Why did God save us in the Exodus? Why did he give us a promised land? Why did he set David up as king and give us this beautiful nation? Because we have done nothing but mess it up. There has been constant, there's this, this stage of guilt at this point. We lost our land, and the reason we lost it is because of our own sin, right? Israel has finally been broken. If, you, if you've been with us, the last five, six weeks, God's been saying, you guys are terrible, I'm going to break you. You're terrible, I'm going to break you. And they're like, no, I'm not. And finally, with the exile and the destruction of their land, Israel goes, fine, God, you're right. And the problem is most of us do a pendulum swing, right? We tend to be the best person in the world or the worst person in the world in our minds. And God has managed to get them out of best person in the world, but the swing goes to worst person. And these people are looking at it and go, what's the point? Why do we even try? God gave us all these blessings, and now all we have is, is destruction and ruins and a collapsed society and no economy and no government and no temple. And we lost it all because it's all our fault and we stink. And why do we even try to fix it? What's the point? And that's a place where we can often feel ourselves being. I look back at life and what have I done with it? And if I've messed it up this bad so far, where am I going to go from here on out? And Zechariah gives us a fascinating little vision in the middle of that. 
Uh, Zechariah is a cool book, but a weird book to read because Zechariah is the beginning of what we call apocalyptic literature. Okay, we see some of this in Daniel and Ezekiel, um, is strong in Zechariah, and then you know it in the New Testament from the book of Revelation. You know how you open the book of Revelation, you go, I don't know what any of this means, right? It's kind of what's reading Zechariah is like. Zechariah is a series of powerful, beautiful, cinematic visions, the kind of stuff that would translate great to short films, but that you read and you go, that's beautiful and breathtaking, and I don't know what it means. Right. And there's a series of these. And we could do I, I mean, we really could do a, Ze a Zechariah eight week sermon series and not run out of material because each chapter you had to have to decode. Uh, this is an image of uh, two olive trees and a lampstand. And you may remember when we did Revelation about 18 months ago, we did a sermon almost completely from Zechariah in order to understand Revelation. Because John uses this image of olive trees and a lampstand. And he basically repurposes it in Revelation from Zechariah. And so that's what this book is like. And today we're going to talk about one of those visions. Zechariah 3.1. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing to, at his right uh, side to accuse him. All right, let's get us uh, up to date so we know what's going on. First of all, this idea of he showed me Joshua. You have to realize that Judah is living in a power vacuum, right? The Babylonians came in, took away all their leaders, destroyed their temple, destroyed the palace, and then left. And for 70 years, it's just been poor farmers living in the area. And now all of a sudden, the society is coming back. And the question is, who is going to lead us? And there's going to be a lot of tension, okay? Because you just think about the politics for a second. The people repatriating Jerusalem are thinking, who is going to lead us and lead the revolution against the Persians, right? The Persians are thinking, who can we have lead them who is capable and pliable, right? And who will do exactly what we want them to do. And so there's this debate. Who's going to be our leaders? Who's going to be our king? Who's going to be the governor, so to speak? Who's going to take care of us? And there's going to be this um, fluctuation between someone who's going to try to throw off the Persians and someone who's going to play nice with the Persians. And part of this book is Zechariah is throwing his, uh, his names into the hat of who he thinks it should be. And this particular chapter is about Joshua. Joshua is from the priestly tribe, and Joshua is kind of rising to this role of high priest, which is something they have to reestablish because they haven't had a priesthood for 10 or 70 years, right? And so Ze Zechariah is saying, I think Joshua is the guy. So that's why in this vision, why is there a guy named Joshua in it? This is who Joshua is, the high priest who Zechariah thinks should be in charge. Uh, also, you notice that we have Satan in the scene. This is unusual. If you're good students of the Hebrew Bible, to my knowledge, this is one of two, maybe three places that Satan is ever mentioned in the Hebrew Bible by name, right? Uh, the other would be Job. We hear Satan is accusing Job. Uh, and then there's a really weird passage that maybe is not Satan, maybe is about David. Uh, obviously, there's the serpent in the garden, but the serpent is never called Satan. That is something that we've kind of put together over time, right? So the explicit mention of Satan is very unusual in the Hebrew Bible. But here it's very much like Job. He is hanging out in God's court. He's hanging out in heaven right before the throne room of God. He's not an enemy that's hiding away. He seems to almost be on God's payroll doing something that he's supposed to be doing. This is very interesting when we study the Hebrew Bible. And his job is what his name means. He is the accuser. 
His job is that he sits in heaven all day and he brings accusations against God's people. If you remember Job, he says, Job doesn't really love you all that much. And God goes, oh, that's an interesting hypothesis. Let's test it out. Right? And you're like, no, God, don't listen to Satan. But this is what Satan does. It's very interesting. In this passage, Satan is doing the exact same thing. He is accusing Joshua and he's saying, Joshua is not good enough to lead these people. He can't handle it. He can't do it. He's just going to mess it up. He's just going to screw the job up. You guys should not trust him. And this is what Satan is and what Satan does. Um, you can imagine that he's saying something like, these people don't deserve to return to the promised land. They messed it up in the first place. Joshua can't handle this job. Everything is going to blow up just like it did the last time. Why don't you just start over with a new chosen people? You can imagine this kind of thing streaming out of Satan's mouth, accusing both the people and Joshua the priest. These folks aren't good enough. We just had to destroy their land to prove it. Why are we starting over again? Pick the, pick the Persians, God. The Persians are better folks. They're going to do a better job of being your chosen people. And this is what they're feeling in Jerusalem as they live in the ruins of their society. The Lord, the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick? snatched from the fire now joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel the angel said to those who were standing before him take off his filthy clothes then he said to joshua see i have taken away your sin and i will put fine garments on you then i said put a clean turban on his head so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the lord stood by uh, this is an imagery here that is really beautiful. It's really simple to understand. Joshua has dirty clothes that represent the sinfulness and the frailty and the brokenness of both Joshua and the people. And this is what Satan is pointing out. Look at how gross he is. And God says, enough. We'll fix that. And they bring him clean new clothes. Uh, we don't have this practice as much when you practice adult baptism, but the early church did this. When you were baptized, when you became a, a member of the part of people of God, you would buy a new set of clothes. Now, for us, that's not a big deal. Some of us buy new sets of clothes three times a week, right? But in the ancient world, a new set of clothes was a big deal. And the idea was when you were baptized and you came out, you were a new person. And so you put on new clothes to symbolize how cleaned and refreshed and pure that you now were, Right? Uh, the only place we're used to this, I think, is if you do, um, when we're used to infant baptism, right? Uh, with infant baptism, they usually get these cute little baby clothes for the baby, right? When they go to their baptism day, and they're dressed all in white and clean and purity. And that's the kind of vestige of this that some of us might know. But there's this idea that these new clothes represent God making them clean and fixing their problems and helping take care of their brokenness. Um, this is uh, God basically saying that he is willing to give his people a new start, right? These new clothes are the symbolism that no matter how sinful and bad and terrible things have been, I will make sure that you are cleaned and you're washed and you're made pure again. Then he uses this phrase that I think is really interesting, that Joshua is a 
stick snatched from the fire, right? Um, in Providence, sometimes stitch, <laughs> stick snatched from the fire can have other meanings from our political history, right? But nonetheless, this here is a more positive meaning, right? This is this idea that the stick entered the fire and started to burn up, and God said, no, 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 I'm going to save that. Um, maybe uh, you've seen a movie where somebody gets angry and they throw something in the fire and somebody else snatches it out to try to save it, right? Because it's too valuable to be destroyed. God says, Joshua, that is who you are. You are about to be burned up in your own futility, in your own sin, in your own problems, but I pulled you out and I saved you. This is where the Hebrew Bible is very clear that God is a rescuing, saving God. If there are moments where you feel like you are getting burned up by life, he is the kind of God that snatches sticks out of the fire so that they are not consumed. And as Satan is trying to hot pile on all the accusations of how Joshua is not good enough, God goes, he is to me. And you might want Satan to burn him up and destroy him and consume him, right? Again, if we go back to Job, this is how Satan felt like he should deal with Job, right? Just take everything from him. Take his family. Take his health. Take his wealth. Just make him miserable. Kill him. Because that's all this guy deserves is to get burned up. And God looks at Satan and says, enough. I think that this person is valuable enough to be saved. I think Israel is valuable enough to still be used for my purposes. Verse 6, the angel of the Lord saw this charge, uh, gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will work, walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant to the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. These are seven eyes on it, that one stone. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Uh, there's a lot of symbolism here that we could try to break down. I'll go through it quickly. Um, the branch that he mentions is a Davidic king, typically is the way we understand it. It's the branch of David, the branch of Jesse. So there's this idea, don't worry, I'm going to not only raise up Joshua the high priest, but there is a, uh, a king candidate that Zechariah is cheering for that we'll see other places in the book. Um, it's really interesting when he talks about bringing up the branch. I think Zechariah is thinking about who's going to take over the, the throne of Israel. Uh, Christians have always read this as Jesus, right? The branch of Jesse, who God promises to bring in Zechariah, Christians have understood as uh, Jesus. And I think both of those things are, are legitimate ways to read that passage. Uh, there's something about stone and eyeballs. Frankly, I didn't do enough research. I don't know. That's really important for some reason. Somebody who's good at apocalyptic literature could tell you why. But clearly the idea is that their sin is going to be taken away and they will be made clean and they'll have a new day. And then there's this image at the end. And each of you will invite over your neighbor and you will sit underneath your vine and your fig tree. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, we did a sermon about Nathaniel, right? There's this famous uh, story where Jesus meets Nathaniel. Nathaniel goes, what good could come out of Galilee uh, or could come out of Nazareth? And Jesus goes, 
Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel goes, oh, my Lord, oh, my God, right? And it's just a sudden shift in Nathaniel based on the word fig tree. And we're like, what is that about? Uh, we talked about how fig tree is a symbol of uh, prosperity, but it's a symbol of appropriate prosperity, right? Kings have palaces, but families that are feeding their family have a fig tree to sit under, right? It's a, a symbol of God giving you a blessing, but giving you a blessing that's enough. And so what God is saying in this passage is, Joshua, if you will do what you are supposed to, if you will obey me, if you will lead these people to the best of your ability, I will make you clean, I will make you pure, and you will all have enough prosperity that you will be able to have your daily bread. You will be able to live and exist. These ruins around you will be rebuilt. You'll have homes, you'll have food, you'll have safety, you'll have health. You can rebuild this because I have made you clean and all I need is for you to work with me in it. All right, let's try to bring it home a little bit. This is the vision that Zechariah gets. Uh, so last week I was here, I talked about my time in California, right? And I talked glowingly of it because I was coming off my post-conference high, right? We did worship and there's all these wonderful things and I'm happy and I'm excited. And you know how that goes. You go to something like that or even if you take a great vacation, you get home, you feel awesome that first day back. And that second day back, you're like, yeah. And the third day back, you're like, I had a good time and I can't let it go. And the fourth day back, you're like, man, my life sucks, right? I mean, it's just, we just, they don't last long for us, right? Let me be honest about the flip side of going to events like I went to, all right? I'm going to share me a little bit, which I don't like to do in sermons, but I hope it helps today. Uh, you go to these events and it can be a real, uh, <laughs> I'll try to use a more polite term, um, so we'll call it a church measuring contest, okay? You go to these events, and people go, oh, hey, how's it going? How's the church? I always try to say something really spiritual, like, oh, I think we're growing in the Lord, and we have good relationships, and all those kinds of things. And, they, and then sometimes people go, oh, really? Well, what, what, what's your Sunday attendance looking like? Right? Because this is the way preachers value determine their worth, essentially, okay? Here's the little secret. If you're around preachers, they won't admit to it, and they'll pretend to be more spiritual than this. But they get around with each other, and they kind of are curious where people are at, right? Like, how much have you grown? Are you baptizing people? Are the new people coming to your church? Are you growing programs? Or are you shrinking programs, right? And if for me, I'm like, you know, we have, and this is totally true. I said we see very slow but very steady growth, right? Our attendance is always trending upwards, Maybe one person per six months at a time, but it's always trending upwards, right? But some guys aren't in that situation. Some guys are in churches that are shrinking. And this question starts to get real uncomfortable. And for me, you guys know me. If we had 600 people here, I'd be really frustrated that we didn't have 601 people here, right? I, you know, you just always want to see it grow. You always want to see it develop. And there's this real spiritual danger when I'm at these things and people want to hear about what's happening at the feast for me to start to do that thing that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. What is happening? What's the value of it? What's the worth of it? Why does it matter? Right? 
And maybe you feel that way. I share that just, I mean, honestly, that's where I am sometimes. I love you all, and I am excited about this church, and I do believe God's doing awesome things, and I think we're having new opportunities, and it's great. I'm not trying to be depressing about our church, but I want to be honest that, you know, it frustrates me sometimes that it's not going faster and bigger than it's going, right? And you maybe have something like that in your life. Whether it's attempts to start a family, or it's your career, or it's the way you're getting along with your in-laws, or whatever. There's something in your life that you're like, you know, I've started, I put in 30, 40, 50, 60 years at this, and I feel like I'm still spinning my wheels. What is the point? Why am I still caring about this? And in those moments, you are in a place like the book of Zechariah. And the response to that is God says, I want you to stop accusing yourself. I want you to stop doing Satan's job for him. Because those feelings of, I can't handle it, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, I clearly am just going to mess this up, I can't be trusted with this responsibility. Those things are the things that Satan is literally employed to do. That is his shtick. It is his job. He's really good at it. He's a jerk because of it, right? This is what we see in Job. It's what we see in Zechariah. That Satan's job is to sit here and say, you can't handle it. To which God says, enough. God rebuke you, Satan. Out of here. No more. Because no matter what you think, even if you think this person is deserving of being consumed by the fire, I am the God who snatches sticks from the fire. And that the longer that we live with these feelings of, I can't handle it, I can't do it, I've messed it up, the more God says, no, no, no. I have empowered you, I have cleaned you, I have purified you, I have made you who I want you to be. And what I am asking is that if you will be faithful, I will give you your fig tree, okay? You do a day's work, and I'll give you a day's worth of living. This is all Jesus asked for, right? Give us today our daily bread. And God says, stop all that other stuff. Stop the, that is, oh, it was a much nicer font on my computer that I didn't even think about, not translating over. God says, no, enough. No more. You are mine. I have given you new clothes. I have given you a new name, as Revelation says. I have taken you uh, in Colossians. I have transferred you from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. I have given you wisdom and power and knowledge and capability. This thing where you sit around saying, why do I even try because I can't do it? Enough. That's Satan's job and he's good enough at it for both of you. Your job is to go and start doing the best you can. And I promise you, I will bless you. But just be true to me and keep going. And those are the words that Zechariah speaks to these people trying to rebuild their world. And it's something he speaks to us when we try to continue to build or rebuild our lives, right? I will snatch you from the fire. I will give you new clothes. I will give you a new name. I will make you capable. Just trust me. And I promise I will bless you. All right, uh, Q&A. What questions might you have about Zechariah and uh, the things that we talked about today?
Yeah, I think that's really good. So with scripture, we always have balance, right? So there are some scriptures about showing ambition and trying to do great things for the Lord and all that kind of stuff. But you're right that particularly in Ecclesiastes, there is this value of uh, Solomon or the teacher in, in, in Ecclesiastes is saying, I've done the big building bigger thing. I have built a bigger kingdom. I have acquired more wives, in his case. I have gotten more money. I have gotten more power. And I have found that if you can do a day's work and get a day's worth of food and be happy with it, that is a blessing far greater than wealth. Right? And I so, yeah, I think that applies well here. Um, God is saying, Joshua, you do not have to be the greatest high priest that we have ever had. All you need to do is just do your job well, and I'll, I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you. Yeah, I think that it does apply very well. So it's, I think it's really unhealthy. I think that ministers do not write, ministers don't ask the same question, the right questions of each other, right? Um, oh, so, so what I try to do is something like, hey, um, first of all, I think it always says, how are you and your family doing, Right. How are you guys as people? That's really nice to be concerned about people more than their job. That's great. Um, I think the other thing that's really great, tell me one good story about something awesome that's happening. Right? Because that um, validates the beauty and the power of a particular moment or a particular person or a particular story. Right? Uh, I think even on a bigger scale, if you're a, if you're a pastor of a church of 500 people, Right? And he used to be a pastor of a church of 600. It's easy to be like, oh. But a church of 500 people, you had 50 amazing things that happened last week, right? But you never look at those blessings if you just do a macro analysis. And so, yeah, I think if you have a friend who's a minister or if you're talking to people who are involved deeply in a church, asking questions like, what's a really cool, positive thing that's happened recently? Is asking to look for God's blessing instead of the other stuff. Um, so I think that's, I think that's really helpful. Uh, a similar question is what are you doing that's new? Sometimes you do new stuff that fails, but it's really important because you learn something or you try the new thing and you're not good at it, but the guy at the next church over tries it himself and he's really good at it. Right. And so I think there's always beauty and power in being creative and creating new ministry opportunities. And so asking people what's good, what's new are ways you know, sometimes you try something that's really awesome and really creative that just doesn't work out in your particular context. But that doesn't mean the rest of the world can't benefit from it. So, yeah, I mean, those are the kinds of questions I would ask. Any other questions about sermon thoughts?